Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. In 1955, near the end of his life, the Yiddish writer Shalom Ash moved to Israel and took up residence in the coastal city of Bat Yam. His former friend and fellow writer, Zalman Schnurr, was none too pleased. He feels that Ash in moving to Israel, is basically vying for the Nobel Prize. He's trying to position himself as a national writer in Hebrew, and he writes angrily about this to his friend, complaining that Ash knows not one word of Hebrew. This is Yaakov Herskovitz, a fellow at the Frankel Center. He says that, in fact, Ash not only did know Hebrew, but early in his career wrote in both Yiddish and Hebrew. Nevertheless, what really bothered Schnurr, Herskovitz says, is that he felt that Ash was honing in on his linguistic territory. This move to Israel, coupled with the national language of Israel, shakes Schnurr because Schnurr for so long held on to this kind of this last guard of self-translating bilingual Hebrew-Yiddish, and he feels like Ash is stepping on his turf in moving to Israel in 55. Now, you may be wondering, what was the big deal? Israel is a small country and was even smaller in 1955, but even then you'd think that the cultural landscape was broad enough to make room for at least two writers who composed in Yiddish and Hebrew and translated their work from one language to the other. But that wasn't how Schnurr saw it. A core aspect of Zionism was that Jewish culture should be monolingual, elevating Hebrew above other Jewish languages, especially Yiddish. And so for Schnurr, presenting himself as original in both Hebrew and Yiddish was an important mark of distinction and contrarian artistic merit. In that context, it's a bit easier to understand how Schnurr might have seen Ash's move to Israel as a threat. For Herskovitz, Schnurr's consternation speaks to a dynamic at the very heart of modern Jewish literature, namely the tension and interplay between Hebrew and Yiddish as Jewish writers sought to elevate one or the other as the language of Jewish nationhood. What fascinates Herskovitz are the ways in which, contrary to the nationalist doctrine that a proper modern people must have a single language in which to express their collective identity, modern Jewish literary artists never really settled exclusively on Hebrew or Yiddish. Instead, Jewish writers bounced from one to the other and back again, engaging in what Herskovitz calls an ongoing translational project from the end of the 19th century to the present day, resulting in an ambivalent multilingualism that functions as a critique of nationalism's traditionally monolingual bias. But before diving into the weeds of Herskovitz's research, to really understand what he's talking about, we first have to take a step back to look at the relationship between Yiddish and Hebrew and how and why modern Jewish writers engaged with these languages. Yeah, so Yiddish was the vernacular, the day-to-day language of Jewish life in Eastern Europe, and all of the writers I discussed started their life in Eastern Europe, though moving around the globe. Hebrew, meanwhile, was the language of prayer and scholarship. And so Jewish writers who were proponents of the Haskalah, or Jewish Enlightenment, initially saw Hebrew as the more prestigious and sophisticated language, and therefore the proper language in which to create serious literature. For example, the grandfather of modern Yiddish literature, Shalom Yenkev Abramovich, better known by his pen name Mendel Amochus Forim, initially wrote in Hebrew. 
But for all its prestige, Hebrew was limited. When Abramovich and his contemporaries began creating a modern Jewish literature during the mid-19th century, the Hebrew lexicon wasn't well attuned to the ways most East European Jews spoke and lived day to day. Yiddish, on the other hand, which was initially seen as lowbrow and unfit for the creation of sophisticated literature, was rich with the tone, flavor, and nuances of East European Jewish life. And so when Abramovich and other pioneering Jewish writers sought to reach a wider readership and to write about the lives of regular Jews, they began to write in Yiddish as well as Hebrew. But adopting Yiddish as a literary language was fraught with anxiety, and in fact was what prompted Abramovich and later Rabinovich to adopt their famous pseudonyms to protect their reputations as serious modern writers. What's really fascinating, though, is that Abramovich, Rabinovitz, and Peretz not only continued to write in Hebrew, but also at certain points self-translated some of their Yiddish writing into Hebrew. And so, from the outset, modern Jewish literature was essentially bilingual and translational, which for Herskovitz raises a host of intriguing questions. I think what's interesting are the moments where they decide to continue self-translating and the translation choices that happen there. What do they translate? How do they translate? What do they not translate? Even within a text where they choose to move between the languages, what is still untranslatable or mistakenly translatable To explore these questions, Herskovitz examines the work of modern Jewish writers who practice self-translation in intriguing ways. For example, the novelist, poet, and essayist Aharon Rauveni, whose colorful life and travels included working in factories in the United States, where he began writing short stories in Yiddish. After returning to Russia and suffering exile in Siberia, he immigrated to Palestine in 1910, where he continued writing in Yiddish and worked with Hebrew writers, most notably Yosef Chaim Brenner, a pioneer of modern Hebrew literature, to translate his work into Hebrew. Herskovitz focuses mainly on Ruveni's most famous work, a trilogy set in Jerusalem during World War I, which Ruveni wrote in Yiddish but published only in translation in Hebrew, resulting in what Herskovitz sees as an undercurrent of language tension. And of words coming into being, and of multilingualism that kind of disrupt the text, so much so that I would say that it's a text about World War I, but really it's a text about language tension more than national tension, or maybe the coupling of national and lingual tensions. In one particularly telling scene, a character walking in Jaffa passes near several scribes who people pay to compose government requests. A supervisor alerts one of the writers to a mistake, and the writer licks the paper with his tongue to erase the offending word and correct it. I cannot but see this as a mode of Ruveni contemplating what is original writing, How is writing get modified and rewritten? What are the stakes of supervision of external powers thinking about what we are writing in a context of war, in a context of national conflict? What is the conflict here, if not a lingual conflict? Throughout the novel, the idea of language, of origins of language, of writing and rewriting, of failing to write are a theme within the text that people who have read it in the past from different perspectives have just not seen. Herskovitz also analyzes the work of Polish-Jewish writer, journalist, and activist Hirsch David Nomberg, who wrote in Hebrew, Polish, and Yiddish. 
Nomberg was a leading voice in the movement to recognize Yiddish as a national language of the Jewish people and one capable of giving rise to serious literature. According to some scholars, Nomberg coined the term Yiddishism, which came to represent this movement. And so, some scholarship has positioned Nomberg as the quintessential Yiddishist, especially in contrast to Ruveni, who is often held up as a model Hebraist. But just as Herskovitz detects a strain of multilingualism in Ruveni's writing, he seeks to also complicate Nomberg's reputation. I think the subversive ways in which he considers, uh, in his travel logs, to Palestine, to the United States, to Russia, to Argentina, in which he looks at Jewish communities from the outside, looking at their languages, contemplating the multilingual aspects of these societies, I think, in his writing, undercuts, in a way, this idea of Yiddish as the national language, and these multilingual continuations are, in, in a way, embedded within these Yiddish texts. In a similar vein, Herskovitz revisits the work of Zalman Schnur, who I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. He began his career as a Hebrew poet and was supported by none other than Chaim Nachman Bialik, one of the pioneers of modern Hebrew poetry. But Schnur became known more for his prose, writing in both Yiddish and Hebrew about his Belarusian hometown of Shklov and translating his work back and forth throughout his career. His movement, his contemplation of his town, moving back in time, rethinking these origins of his language, of his languages, is what I find fascinating. The ways in which, in Hebrew and in Yiddish, he refashions his prose to fit what he sees to be the audience he's writing to. Schnur's writing in Yiddish began with quaint shtetl stories about small-town Jewish life and eventually shifted to focus on darker elements. In Hebrew, he went straight to the underbelly. He starts with rape, murder, stealing. So it's kind of refashioning of his prose in a way in which he understands himself as a Hebrew writer, as a Yiddish writer, what the audience is expecting, what he believes even what is Yiddish literature and what is Hebrew literature? Schnur's work was very popular and appeared in various forums in Hebrew and Yiddish publications around the world. Other modern Jewish writers also reached audiences in the United States, Palestine, Eastern Europe, and elsewhere. For Herskovitz, these transnational networks of Jewish literary production and consumption played an important role not only in enabling Jewish writers to earn a living, but also in shaping how they created and translated their work. These two are intertwined in a way that self-translation brings to the fore, because once you're moving between languages, these, these networks expand and intertwine even more than they are as it is, because even for just Yiddish or just Hebrew, these things are very true. But once you consider these both networks overlapping, and really they could not be separated in the first half of the 20th century, this, the picture becomes very intricate. Most scholarship on modern Jewish literature presents self-translation among Jewish writers as a feature mainly of the period before the Second World War. 
afterwards, in the wake of the near total destruction of East European Yiddish culture and the establishment of the modern Israeli state in 1948, Hebrew reigned supreme as the language of Jewish literary artistry. Or so the argument goes. But Herskovitz pushes back on that argument, finding in contemporary Israeli literature intriguing traces of the self-translation between Hebrew and Yiddish that was so prominent during the first half of the 20th century. For example, the novel Fogelman by the celebrated Israeli writer Aharon Meged is about a Yiddish writer who after the Holocaust immigrates to Israel and tries, and ultimately fails, to publish his Yiddish writing in Hebrew translation. For Herskovitz, the novel is a striking instance of writerly fascination with the bilingual nature of Hebrew literature, especially coming from someone like Meged. A writer who is the, like, the idea of the Sabra, he was in the Palmach, he fought, he wrote only Hebrew, he advocated for Hebrew, trying to think of Israeliness vis-a-vis these specters of Yiddish that are lost. How can one translate Yiddish into Hebrew? He's asking us, how do you, does Yiddish continue to exist after maybe tragedy, after death, after movement from Eastern Europe to Palestine? Herskovitz is also struck by the Israeli literary critic and writer Don Miron, who has retranslated some of the Yiddish writing of Abramovich, who we discussed earlier, into Hebrew. Writers who are retranslating Yiddish classics into Hebrew nowadays are trying to, through these translation, contemplate the bifurcated origins of Jewish literature or of Hebrew literature. Hebrew literature or Israeli literature is born out of self-translation, is born out of Yiddish as much as it is born out of Hebrew. What are the stakes of these bifurcated origins of Israeli culture. How legible are the origins of this culture, be they Hebrew or Yiddish? These questions are relevant not only for literary scholars, Herskovitz says, but for anyone interested in issues related to identity and self-expression. The ways in which we as a culture, be it American culture, Israeli culture, cultures around the world think about language as a as a courier for these ideas of the self be it the national self or the self self <laughs> just to be very eloquent about it how does language structure the ways in which we understand our own lives and the lives of the culture within which we're interacting and living those lives out That does it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Jean and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. You can find the Frankly Judaic podcast anywhere you get podcasts on any podcast app. And we hope you'll leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.